we're going to start with something that we have done a couple of times. And I'm not just doing this for fun. I want to clarify that um, in future sermons, sometimes we're going to have a little bit of interaction in the middle of the sermon, meaning we will give you the chance to, to you know, engage with the Word, engage with your thoughts, and give your, your responses. And so how many of you have done mentee before? Give me a wave. Okay, everyone get out your phones. A lot of the young people already had their phones anyway because they were so ready for this activity. Okay, and we're going to do something which is going to lead into the sermon. It's quite fun. What you're going to do is open up your browser, type in menti.com, menti.com, and then put in the number 512759. And I'm going to give you about one to two minutes to fill in your responses. Okay, right now... Wow, that was fast. Okay. Right now is durian season. How many of you have been enjoying this season? Give me a wave if you love durian. And give me a wave if you prefer if your close friends and family didn't love it so much. You know, they've been enjoying, they've been going out. I've been seeing so many groups go out and have fun. And so we're going to have a battle today to see which is the most popular and very obviously, there is one clear leader right now. Keep going. We're going to go until about 100 over responses. And then we will keep this for very valuable research and feedback in future. Hey, the number two is can't stand urines. <laughs> Poor you guys. Huh? Pastor Danny cannot. You don't like durians. Okay, you just bought some from Pastor Linda uh, recently. Keep going, just 20 more seconds. All right, it's very, very clear which is the winner. I think that the majority in this hall love Musang King, is that right? How many of you are able to identify the correct Musang King? Do you know how to identify it? Apparently, there is a way. Because sometimes when we try it out, it tastes different, the seed is bigger, you know, the flesh is different. But apparently when you see the durian, there's a certain shape and flower at the bottom of the, you know, when, before they open the husk. I think you can research it. I don't know myself. All right, so Musang King is the winner. Okay, second question, let's go. All right, this is a little bit of a complicated question according to my wife. So let me try to explain it. Think about a time when you had a great catch-up with friends. What is one word that describes why it was so good? Sometimes we have these really good catch-ups, wow, that touch our soul in a very positive way. And we go away refreshed. We go away feeling, you know, that we are a little bit um, strengthened with a bit more joy. All right, fellowship, connection, food. Someone put alcohol. I can... I can try to guess who that might be in the back of the hall, but I won't reveal her name. And um, fellowship, wow, you guys are very spiritual, I think because we're in church service, right? So when you meet up with your friends, it looks like the winners are, it's good to have a good connection, a meaningful fellowship. Food is obviously extremely popular. Laughter, I, I feel laughter is important, but a lot of my friends don't laugh a lot of my jokes. Authentic, I love that word, okay. Love, yes, some of you are looking for love. Um, <laughs> coffee, 
You know, Levi is actually a very, very proficient uh, coffee maker. He's actually qualified to be a judge in Malaysia to judge coffee competitions. That's how good he is. So he's been making coffee every Sunday morning. If you guys want to visit uh, one of these days to the service, he makes coffee at like 7.45 in the morning. I walk in at 7.30 and he's hard at work already um, making coffee on Sundays. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. And uh, the point of these just very simple questions is that even though we all come from vastly different walks of life, we're from different ages, different backgrounds, different experiences, different perspectives, there are still very key points of commonality that we will find among us. Things that can bind us together. If some of us put up our hands together and, uh, after service and say, hey, who loves durian? Let's go out for, you know, SS2 uh, buffet. I'm sure there will be people that have never interacted before who can come together and have that meal together. You know, and there are points that bind us in common, commonality. And so the question I want to go into today is, as a community of faith, as Christ followers, what are the common things that bind us together? What are the points that overlap? And what are things that should define us as a community? I have one final question. It gets a little bit more serious. And this was something I wasn't sure whether I should go ahead with. But when I asked my wife, she said, go for it. And how many of you know that's very encouraging when a wife just says, go for it. And you have to listen very carefully on how she says go for it because sometimes if I ask the wrong thing, she still says go for it, but you have to, you know, discern what she means. If I say, oh, my friend just called me at midnight. He wants to go mama with me. Can I go out? She will say, go for it. If I ask her today, should I download Wizards Unite? <laughs> should I download this game that some people are starting to play? She will say, go for it. And I'll know that I'm not supposed to. <laughs> but when I was asking her, should I ask this question? She said, go for it. And I felt into my spirit, you know, that because it's anonymous, let's have some honest answers, okay? Number three, who resonates with this line today? And it's going to lead on to the sermon that we're having today. I'm currently going through a really challenging storm right now. I'm just about ready to give up. And maybe no one even knows about it. Maybe, you know, in the morning I put on my makeup. I come out with a smile. I come to church. I'm still, you know, doing my best to worship God. But that's me. just going to take a few more seconds, 20 more seconds, just to see your responses, to see whether there's anyone here that's going through that kind of season right now. And we're going to be very honest, you know, no one's going to check, what did you answer, what did you answer, unless maybe your friends are a little bit busybody, they can, okay? The reason why I ask this question is because as I was preparing for this sermon, the words that kept coming to me was, secret storms. And I believe there are some in the congregation today that are going through very, very difficult seasons. Difficult seasons that no one else knows about. That you're not even sure whether you can tell someone else, whether you should inconvenience someone else, whether you should, you know, load someone else with your drama maybe. And these storms 
are just hitting you very hard right now in this time of your life. It could be financial storms. It could be health storms. It could be storms in your family, in your work, in your career. It could be so many things. And sometimes these things hit all together in one perfect storm. And it completely, you know, hits us over, completely blindsides us. And we're left stumbling and wondering how we're going to continue, you know, and continue to hang on. Amen. So that's about one-third here that have said that today. That means you look around to your right and left, one out of three people in this room are currently facing a very difficult storm. And we don't realize that sometimes when we walk in and you sit next to, you know, you don't know who you're sitting next to maybe, but you don't know that the battles that they are fighting, don't know the challenges that they're facing, you don't know the storms that are currently storming over their lives. And this is something that I want to talk about today. Um, and uh, one thing that, that I found a, a meme this week, it went around on some Christian meme sites. Um, <laughs> can we change to, to that? And uh, it's, uh, how many of you have watched Guardians of the Galaxy? Okay, so this meme went around. And I got really uh, happy at seeing it. I like memes. I like to laugh at them. All right. Can we change to the second? Yeah. Here we go. So it says this. Life falling apart but still worshiping God because I know He is good. And so this went around and I was, I just know, I just made me laugh because it's so true and so honest. And we come to church no matter what we're going through and we're like declaring God is good. The worship team goes up and we have victory, you know, declaring victory over our lives. And actually when we go back into the world, we're still feeling that crushing uh, failures and, and, and difficulties and challenges. And for, you, for those of you that are doing this, I commend you for it. It's not easy. It's not easy to continue faithfully serving. Some of you are leaders. Some of you are serving week in, week out on the worship team, pastors, ministers. And we're just trying to make it through and continue worshiping God in the midst of a storm. Amen? So we got to stand together on it. And the last couple of months, there have been people that I've been talking to, people that I thought I was quite close to, but as they began to share in certain moments about what they were going through, all I could say was, man, I had no idea you were going through this. And I'm so sorry that I haven't been there for you. You know, and over and over, they began sharing things that were just so shocking in terms of the depth of how painful that storm was. And ine inevitably, as you hear these stories, as you experience them in your own life, you begin to ask questions like, if God is so good, why does He allow us to go through such hurt, such painful and hidden storms? And as you begin to look into the Word of God, you will see so many characters in the Bible that go through secret storms. Characters like David, like Joseph, that had to go through so many years and so many seasons of crushing. Imagine David. He's anointed to be king, but the, when we're introduced to him, his father didn't even remember him, you know. The prophet came and said, I want to see all your, ch your, your children. And they all came out, 
And, uh, and then the prophet asked him, is there any more? And he didn't even address him by name. He said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. The youngest is out in the fields tending to the sheep. And after he was anointed to be king, he still went through season after season of crushing. And you see that over and over in the Bible. You see that many times the crushing comes before the breakthrough. The wilderness comes before the deliverance. The cross and death comes before the empty tomb. And you see that there's always a process and that God always has a greater purpose. And the only way that we as, as Christians are able to step into that greater purpose is to have these storms mold us and build a capacity and break the things and pieces that are not meant to go into the new season away from us. It's the only thing that can put us into that place of learning, into that humility where we say, God, I can't do this anymore but for your strength. I can't do it unless you come down and you save me. It's only you. And when we come to that place, He begins to do something so miraculous in the way that He builds our character and builds us to be able to carry the purpose, the great purpose that He has in our future. And so one thing that we realize as we read through the Word is that it's inevitable that we're going to go through these storms. It's inevitable that we're going to go through these season of, seasons of crushing. But the other thing that you realize is that these storms don't need to stay secret. That there is a place for the community of God to come together and journey alongside each other. You're not meant to go through these storms alone. You're not meant to go through these storms in isolation. And this is something that has been speaking to me the last two months and really heavy on my heart. You know, and that's why even for the sermon title today, oh, he's still dancing. Wow, he's got a lot of energy. Even for the sermon title today, I decided to build on what Pastor John has shared a few weeks ago. How many of you are around for his sermon, whether on Saturday or, or, or Sunday? His sermon was called Keepers of Spaces and Communities. And I just wanted to build on that. Keepers of Spaces and Communities. You guys remember the Hebrew word that he talked a lot on? He called it, it was the, the Hebrew word for keep, which is shamar. All right? And shamar is to take great care to, 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 to watch over, to take great care to, 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 to cultivate, to protect, to preserve. And he was talking about how God used it in the context of the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve were charged to be keepers of that, that space that God had created, that safe place. And because we, we can't go back to the Garden of Eden, but it doesn't mean that God is not still building those places of safety, that He doesn't want the church to get involved in building them and to keep them in a way that is aligned to His will. And I want to build on that because I believe that that is one of the thrusts of this season for Glad Tidings. And I've been hearing it in, 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 in coming from a lot of people, from leaders all the way down to the congregation, where there has been that language coming out, that cry from their hearts, a spiritual hunger for a safe place, a spiritual hunger for deep and meaningful relationships, a spiritual hunger for things that are beyond facades and masks and just getting the task done and just running, you know, and just serving. They want to have real, authentic places of community 
where they can be real, where they can be authentic, where they can reveal exactly who they are without feeling that they need to be someone else. And that's been the cry of, 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 of the hearts of a lot of people. And I sense that, and that's why I want to build on that. And once again, this is, this is not to say that we should only focus internally. You know, a healthy church is an outward-focused church. It's a missional church. It's a church that catches the heartbeat of God for the lost and goes out to, to share the gospel and share the good news. But at the same time, we have to recognize that there are seasons that internally we need to build the relationships and the communities so that the people serving, the people running along have a safe place to find refuge in, a place of respite, a place of rest. So that's what I want to focus on today. And there is a quote by Andy Stanley, he's Pastor Andy Stanley. He's, he's the pastor for the second biggest church in America. And he says this, I mean, they have almost 40,000 uh, members in six different sites, six different campuses. And he says this, at the end of the day, circles are better than rows. And from day one, we've been committed to creating a culture that's all about circles and not rows. We are famous for our rows, but the strength of our churches is what happens in circles. And we are in rows today. These pews have been around for a very long time. It came from Bible school, you know, Bible college last time at that venue, that auditorium. And they've probably been around 50, 60 years. You know, we have so much heritage in this church. And this pastor of a church that is so large, so successful, is saying that although what people see are the rows of people coming to you know, sit in the auditoriums, to listen to the Word, to, uh, con you know, uh, get involved in the worship, the things that you don't see are what form the strength to sustain that church. It's the authentic relationships that form. It's authentic circles and communities that form in the background. Those are the things that will sustain a church to grow and to succeed and to reach the communities. And so if we are going to carry the mission of God out there, we can't be in a place where we feel unsafe and unwelcome. And we can't be in a place that we feel disconnected. It has to be in a place that we say, this is where I'm settled in. This is where I belong. Amen? The passage that came to me today is a bit of a, an interesting one, <laughs> a bit of a tricky one. Um, and, um, you know, I wasn't really sure whether this was the one, but I kept coming back to it over and over again because this is a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is addressing something with the communion. And we was very familiar with this passage. We hear it pretty much every, um, every month when we partake communion together, you know. And because of our familiarity with it in the context of communion, sometimes we can actually uh, miss out on what Paul is actually intending to emphasize and focus on in this passage. And this is what I want to focus on today. Before I go into reading the verse, I just want to provide some context it sounds very much like scolding. If you read 1 Corinthians, it is the most scoldy book 
uh, in the New Testament. I don't know. You guys agree? It's just scolding after scolding, you know. And uh, what's happening is that Paul had founded the Corinthian church on a second missionary journey. And he stayed there 18 months in order to establish that church, establish his practices, establish his traditions. And then he left to continue his ministry uh, journey. And at this time, when he's writing a letter back to the Corinthian church, he's actually ministering in Ephesus, all right, where he writes Ephesians later on as well. And he's heard a lot of concerning reports about the church in Corinth that he founded, you know. And he's addressing them one by one. So if you want to read a, a book that likes to scold uh, people, uh, you know, it's so interesting because that's what Paul is doing. He's correcting them over and over and over again. There's no book in the New Testament that has more correction in it than 1 Corinthians. And so it's quite interesting because you can even see a lot of sarcasm and a lot of uh, very brutally direct um, you know, phrases that he uses. You know, bear in mind that when he writes these letters, he's carefully crafting out these letters in order to communicate a message of how, an instruction of how a church should function. So for those of you here who are considered brutally direct and, and very sarcastic, you know, say amen. <laughs> All right. So, we're going to read the verse together. Can everyone stand up for the reading of the word? Amen. Let's go. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Amen. Let's not sit first. Let's just pray over the reading of the word. God, we acknowledge your divine presence here today. May you speak to us, O oh Lord, in this passage of Scripture. May we reveal your truths. May you reveal exactly what you want 
today, O oh Lord, that the thrust and the message, O oh Lord, that you want us to catch, O oh Lord, may it be revealed. God, teach our hearts, O oh Lord, what it means to be a community of faith. Teach our hearts what it means to be a community that partakes communion together. May our hearts be open to you, O oh Lord. We commit this time into your hands, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sit down. So what is happening in this church? Why is Paul so upset, so worked up? And what does a passage about communion have to do with the safe places and communities that we want to build in glad tidings? I want to give a bit of background to the early church back then. They were not meeting in halls like this or big halls. They were meeting in homes. And the homes are different from what you would find in your cell groups and life groups today. They are bigger. Usually, the, the wealthier Christians will open up their home. And it's a big home, you know, where they will have farms and fields, you know, agriculture and stuff. And they will have big homes where they will open it up to be a safe place for the community to come to. That means people from all walks of life from around that community gets to come and are invited into this home to hear the good news, to receive the good news, and to partake the Lord's Supper together. And um, so the people that come might be homeless people, widows, orphans, you know, different people from different uh, jobs, different walks of life. And even in that family, they call it familia in Latin back then, which there's no direct representation today, you know, the, the, that household is in charge of slaves, of servants that are paid, of servants that are not paid, but they are bound to the household, workers, laborers, relatives, extended family, you know, and they're in charge of all these people that also will come to this service. And that's why they were so adamant and in saying that the head of the household is so important in setting the pace for the family back then. Because when a head of a household back then says, I'm going to follow Jesus, there is no question about it. Everyone under that household follows Jesus. They don't even, it doesn't even cross their mind that they can follow another religion or do something else. Because the head of the household is in charge of every aspect of that household the economy of that household, the laborers, the workers. He is the master. He is the employer. He is the father. He is the husband. And so he takes on that authority. And that's why as the head, the moment he says, I'm going to follow Christ, everyone follows Christ in his household, no matter which layer they're at. And that's why it was so powerful when they began to apply the Old Testament verse, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. It is dictated, determined by the authority of the head of the household. And so what the emphasis was, was that when everyone came into this church meeting, in this house, in this safe place, they were equals before God. They would freely receive the gift of salvation. The only thing that qualified them was, was, was Jesus and His blood. They were all able to come and have the same access to God, the same access to the new covenant through Jesus' blood, the same access to what was happening, uh, what had happened on the cross, the same access to the hope in Jesus. 
They could be slaves, they could be homeless, they could be widows, they could be orphans. But when they came into that household, in that meeting of faith, in that community of faith, they were equals. And then what was happening is that in the culture of that day, they would have a meal as part of their church service. How many of you liked that approach? <laughs> you know, we have a big meal outside, you know, suyo, buffet, everything, you know. And so they would, they would have food. And, they, it, you know, a lot of scholars believe that it was, um, it was called the agape feast, the love feast that you would read about in the book of Jude. And so they'll have a meal before they, you know, go into the sharing. And then once that, at the end of the church service, the point that they feel is the most important part of the church service, which is the last point, they take the Lord's Supper together, the communion. And that Lord's Supper was supposed to exemplify and, and, and represent everything that it meant for them as a community of faith. It was their most precious and sacred act that was instituted directly by Jesus. But what happened in this agape feast? Different layers of people were coming in different ways. Some would bring their own food from home, you know, and then maybe eat around that with their friends. You know, especially the aunties, they would pack their Tupperware. You know, they will make their sandwiches. And then with their friends, hey, we, we come and eat first, you know, during this part of the meal. Some, they f found through research, would, would have these upper rooms where the VIPs would go and sit and eat. You know, the host would like, likes to host his friends, whether at church or not at church, you know, a meeting. They will have an upper room where they can fit maybe 15 to 20 people. And, you know, it will be all guys, like all buddies, you know, hey, bro, come, yeah, come, come, come. And they will go up to that upper room and eat, you know, of the food that the host had prepared and drink of the wine as well that the host had prepared. And all this was happening while in the courtyard down below, they would maybe serve some finger food, maybe just some nachos, you know, maybe just some chips. And many times that food would not be enough people would come and there would be no food left. And while they're waiting, hungry, while they're waiting in that kind of setting, they, they realize that there's these people laughing and enjoying up in the, the VIP room, the guest room, you know, drinking wine, indulging in as much food, good food as they want, while they are hungry down there. And so now you begin to get a sense about why Paul was so worked up, why he was so upset do you see his language just now? He was sarcastic. Don't you have homes, your own homes to, to eat at? Why do you have to come here and do this kind of nonsense? You know, he was so brutally direct. You hum humiliate people. You shame them. You, your meetings do more hurt and more damage than good. And he's saying that, you know, when, and then at the, end of the, at the end of it, you come together and you partake communion, which represents that we are all one body of Christ, part of one loaf, you know, and we acknowledge Jesus in that way. It doesn't honor what that sacrament is meant to do. This is not what a community of faith is meant to do. And so they would come, and 
at a place where they were expecting to receive that love of God without any discrimination, they were reminded of the rejection that they felt in society. And so I have a quote here by Henry Nguyen, and he's a beautiful writer. I don't know if you guys have read any of his books or his quotes, but he writes beautifully about shame, about how we come to God, you know, in our brokenness. And he's a Catholic uh, uh, priest and a theologian and an author. And uh, this is what he says about self-rejection. He said, oh, I, I'm going to read something that's not up there, but I'm going to combine with that. He says, over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. And so he, he links it back to this self-rejection. And the reason why we have to validate our lives even by achievement in terms of I can only accept myself if I have success, if I have popularity, if I achieve certain things in life, is because there is a fundamental self-rejection. And he ends with this very powerful quote. He says, Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. And when we come into the presence of God, when we come to the church service, we need to hear the voice that calls us beloved, not because of anything we have done, not disqualified by any mistakes that we have done, not determined by anything in our past, but because God calls us qualified. God has chosen to love us, and He's chosen to give His Son to die for our sins so that we have complete and direct access to Him. Isn't that amazing? Amen. So my intention today is not to take the same scolding tone as Paul. So don't worry, you can breathe a little bit easier now. I want to look at the implications that he was making to community. What it meant for a community to partake communion, what it meant for a community of God, a family of God to come together in a church service, in a congregation, meeting together. And I want to look at these implications. So it's not so much that I'm going to start scolding. Don't worry. There are three main implications that I want to touch on today. And so as we go from here and we begin building the safe places in and through church and building these communities, we want to, uh, you know, begin to reflect as well on some of these implications. The first implication that I want to talk about is that a community needs to be built with the right foundations. It needs to be built on the right foundations. You see how Paul brought up the issue. Even though he was talking about how, you know, you humiliate people, you make them feel unwelcome, you shame them, you know, you show them whether you, you differentiate between the haves and haves-nots, you discriminate against them. He then hinges it back to one thing, the communion of the people. 
hinges it back on this, the one sacred act that Jesus had instituted on the day that he, you know, he, he, he was betrayed, that final supper that he had with his disciples. And so we need to make sure that as we go about building these communities, it's not just because we want to do something good. It's not just because we want to do something humanitarian. It's not just because we want to do a value add into some of these communities around us. It is because it is ingrained into our very identity as followers of Christ, as people who take communion together. So we just want to um, remember that as we go along. We need to get the foundations right so that everything that we do flows out of our identity and our worship. And I want to talk a little bit about how communion is linked to worship. You know, I had a lecturer in Bible school, and we had a long argument. Because <laughs> he, he's actually taking his doctorate in, um, in, in worship theology right now. And he's my friend, so... Um, you know, we're, we're, we're good. And he, he said this, the central act of worship is communion. The central act of worship is communion. And it was difficult for me as a worship leader, you know, because I connect and resonate best in worship in song, songs that touch my heart, songs that, that allow me to express exactly what I want to say from the depths of my heart to God. And and. and and the gratitude that I feel to God. But he's saying that the, the sacrament of communion that we do once a month in glad tidings is the most important act that you will do of worship. It encompasses what worship means in terms of the revelation of God and our heart's response better than anything else that we can do. And it's been, you know, playing on my mind for years. I always think about this. You know, I've even discussed it with, with, with those around me. And I'm beginning to see a little bit about what he is referring to. And I don't know how we approach communion. Next week, we're taking communion. And I don't know whether it's just a monthly act that we do for five minutes in order to remember what Christ did 2,000 years ago. Is that the extent of our engagement with communion? It is so much more than that. It is an expression of our worship. It encompasses everything that we need to do in worship. The Catholic, um, Catholic uh, um, uh, call it, they call it the Eucharist. They don't call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And Eucharist stands for gratitude. And one of the things that needs to come out is such a deep gratitude when we are taking communion. Not just remembrance, not just remembering something in history, but the gratitude that what Christ did on the cross the empty tomb is what gives us freedom and life and breakthrough today. Such a gratitude has to rise out from our spirit as we hold those emblems, as we partake those emblems. And that's why they wanted to emphasize it by calling it the Eucharist. Not only remembrance, more than remembrance. And there's a part in the verse that says, you know, do this in remembrance from me until I come again and we will sup again, all right? And so there is an also a, an anticipation for the coming, the second coming of Jesus again. 
every time you partake, you are also partaking in anticipation that of the day that we will partake at the same table with Christ again. When He comes again, we're going to be partaking with Him again. And that means there is an eschatological urgency and anticipation of Christ coming again. It reminds us that we are to live in that anticipation as well. And this is um, yeah, what, I paid, uh, what we paid uh, Bible school for in order to learn words like eschatological, you know. So uh, that's where my three years went. I learned that word. <laughs> we live in anticipation for Christ coming again. And we remind ourselves of that every time we take communion. It's not just remembrance. And finally, it represents the mystical bond that we have with Christ, with the living presence of God that is in our midst every time we partake, as well as our mystical bond of fellowship with each other as His body. When He says you partake, when He says that you are part of one loaf, and when you break this bread, you are part of my body, He's saying that we are all one body and our fellowship is bound together by the way we partake communion together as a community of faith. And I don't know how, whether this will, will change, um, you know, next week when we take communion, but I really encourage you to treat it as more than just a ritual that we do for five minutes every month. It's more than that. The gratitude overflows. We remember what God has done, how God has saved us in Christ Jesus. We remember in gratitude. We look forward in anticipation. He could come tomorrow. He could come next week. But we remind ourselves of that when we partake. And we have to consider not only the, the, the living presence of God as we, as we partake, but also the presence of the, the brothers and sisters around us. We do it communally. Theologically, you're not meant to do it in small little pockets. You're not meant to do it in ones or twos or threes. You're meant to do it when the church comes together. It is a communal thing. It is a body thing to do. Amen? And so we need to get our foundations right so that everything that we do in building these safe places comes out of our identity and overflows out of our worship. Let our motivations be right, not just a humanitarian feeling of, yes, I want to do something good, but because it is how we are defined as a community of faith. The second implication that I want to talk about is that a community needs to be built on mindfulness, with a lot of mindfulness. And you see that in the verses when he says, consider the body. Consider the body of Christ. You need to be sensitive. You need to be mindful about what is going on around you. You need to see that actually you're discriminating those that don't have. When people come in, do they feel welcome? And he's saying, consider the body. And, and even if you, if you actually begin to analyze what Paul is saying, when he says, examine your hearts, when he says, um, so that you do not partake in an unworthy manner, we have, uh, according to church tradition, you know, applied it across the board, right? In communion, sometimes we say, can we search our hearts and see if there's any sin before God? And there's nothing wrong with doing that, but we also need to realize what Paul's emphasis was in this verse. When he said, consider your hearts so that you do not partake unworthily, he was talking about a very specific type of sin. 
fellowship sin, the sin that, does, that has numbed itself as a community to the things that are going on, numbed itself to, 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 to when people come in and feel left out, numbed itself to, to people who come in and feel so crushed under the weight of the world, under the weight of their storms, and come in to be reminded of the rejection that they have experienced in society when they are supposed to come in and find open arms and the love of Christ. We need to discern the body. And I was talking to a, a pastor a couple of days ago, and she was telling me about this um, individual that came into the church. And the, 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 this person um, reeked of alcohol. She came in drunk and she, and, and just, you know, the smell was very, very strong. She had obviously just drunk a lot before coming, hard liquor. And where she sat down, the families all began to move away. And this pastor told me that uh, she went and sat next to, to this person and began to talk to her and hear her story. It's actually a very successful person, you know, who's done amazing projects but went through a season of storms and went through a season of depression and found, you know, her solace in alcohol. And when she came into church, you know, and saw all the families moving away, it began to reinforce and remind her how unworthy she felt and how, you know, devastated she felt. You know, but it takes, it takes us to go and sit next to a person like that and find out about their life. And let them know that they're accepted. Let them know that they're loved. There should be no one that walks into this, um, into this hall that feels unwelcome. And when we started um, this service uh, two years ago in this hall, you know, we spoke to all the people who were involved, the key anchors, the hospitality team, the F&B team, the ushering team, even parts of the, the worship team. And we asked them, what do you think uh, should be the vision for this service? And everyone began to share and agree that we wanted to create a welcome home culture. And that's why you see a lot of that language around church as well, you know. And so when people come and they, they serve week after week and, and, you know, make food and drinks for us week after week, you know, where Sunday right now doesn't have the food as well, they're doing this as an extra uh, ministry in order to create something that they see and, 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 and visualize that everyone can come in and find a, a safe place where they can connect to someone, that they can have meaningful relationships, that the five-minute conversations can move to a 15-minute conversation like Pastor John shared uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that's the reason why they, they serve week after week. They want an, an atmosphere, an environment where everyone feels welcome. And if... You are sitting here today and you're thinking, okay, I've been here for months or maybe even years and I haven't felt connected. I want to apologize for that. I want to commit to building that culture here. We are not there yet, but I'm sure you will get there. And it's not possible for everyone to know everyone. I think that's a, a little bit unrealistic. But it is possible for everyone to know somebody and know somebody well enough that when they're going through a storm in their life, a season in their life where it's so challenging, 
they're able to say, hey, I need some help. I need someone to pray for me. I need someone to speak life into my, life, into my heart. We need to have that culture and that environment. And the last point is that a community needs to be built with honesty. You see how Paul approached it. There was so much truth and honesty. He was so brutally honest in terms of addressing the Corinthian church. He was able to tell them exactly what he felt about what they were doing without beating around the bush. And not only that, he was exhorting them to be honest with themselves and say, examine your hearts, examine yourselves, whether you are partaking unworthily, whether you have discerned the body, whether you have been mindful of the body. And honesty is such a, an important part of the process for healing and reconciliation and love to happen. Sometimes when we're unable to acknowledge the truth, it is the, one of the things that keeps us from our breakthrough and our healing. And this jumped out at me uh, last week uh, when evangelist Carl Butler preached, you know, on healing. He was preaching here and on Sunday as well, powerful services with healings that took place. And he was talking about a story about a blind man that was healed at Bethsaida. Do you guys remember? And he wasn't, he wasn't talking about what I'm going to share, but uh, something just jumped out as he was sharing about that. The man didn't receive healing straight away. It's one of the rare occasions where, you know, Jesus did something and the man uh, wasn't, wasn't healed, you know, just a little bit. And so, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of that man. How honest does he have to be with Jesus? This miracle worker that has just, uh, you know, um, prayed for him, just spat in his eyes. I, I hope that when you come up for healing, no one has, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine it. But uh, healing is a messy process, all right? Uh, and so... Jesus had spat in his eye. It was already such a dramatic thing. And then Jesus asked, so can you see, have you been healed? And he had to then muster up the courage and the honesty to say, actually, I have not been healed completely yet. I still can't really see. All I see are things, blurred images like trees walking around. Do you guys remember that, that, that passage? He had to come to a place of such vulnerability and honesty before Jesus then prayed for him again and he received his full healing. And there's a process to it. There's a process that involves healing and it's the same with communities. When we are vulnerable and honest and authentic in communities, then true healing can come. Sarah and I, it's only recently that we've started to um, involve ourselves in more communities during this season as we have felt this heartbeat for the church. And um, actually, it, you know, you might think it's unusual. We've been, we grew up in this church. We've been here for decades. And, you know, suddenly we're going into a season again where we are starting to open our hearts to, to communities in a way where we trust people with our hearts. And it's more difficult than you might think. It's very easy to talk about. It's very easy to say, yeah, I've got friends. I can share to them. But being able to really come to someone and just say, you know what, honestly, 
it's, it's, it's been a rough season. And I need someone to walk along and journey along with us. That was not easy. You know, we have been um, getting involved in communities like the Healthy Thursday that Pastor John has, has shared about. Every Thursday, there's a group of people that try to exercise together. You know, no matter how fit you are, no matter what age group, we've got people <laughs> coming that are a lot older than us and, and, and a lot younger than me uh, as well <laughs> that have been, have been coming every Thursday. And you'll find that some of the sessions after basketball or after um, this workout, when we hang around and sit around, is when we begin to share about our lives to each other and journey along. And some of those moments are when I found out things about people, what people are going through where I can say, can I walk with you and journey with you? Can I speak into your life? And there's, uh, I've, I've been seeing different groups that have been popping up in church as well. There is a guitar uh, head group, you know, they, they love guitar, what do you call it? Equipment, expensive stuff, you know. And uh, they're very, uh, they go masala wheels quite often, you know, and they've been spending time together and, and, and sharing their passion for, for guitars and all the gadgets. I have no idea how it all works, you know. And just recently as well, um, we've been accepted into a, a movie group that we felt so accepted, you know, and so loved. Uh, it started with Avengers Endgame. You know, we decided to join a group that we don't usually join for, for, for community. And then it has grown into lunches and dinners and, you know, ending so far with Toy Story 4, of which Mei Fong has told me not to give any spoilers because she's going to watch it soon. But Toy Story 4 was a fitting, you know, final piece before I preached this sermon because that story is about friendship. How many of you have seen that show? How many of you cried? <laughs> so nostalgic. It was about friendship. And you find toys uh, in that show that show more human emotion than the people that you meet every day. You know, they, they are able to be honest with their insecurities about finding significance as a toy. You know, am I still uh, valuable to my child? Do I still bring joy to my child? They're trying to find their purpose in life. <laughs> They're supporting each other. And then um, Woody, the, the main character, across the four movies, he's got one main philosophy. No toy gets, you guys know it, left behind. Thanks. No toy gets left behind. I'm going to wrap up very soon. But can we make sure that as we go about building the safe places and communities and glad tidings, can we make sure that no one gets left behind? That everyone has a place. Everyone feels welcome. Everyone is able to be connected to someone else. That they don't come here to find a friendly church, but they come here and find a friend. so that no one has to fight those battles alone, so that no one has to face those storms in isolation. That is the vision and desire 
of, of the leaders in this, um, in this congregation today. And I've heard that cry as well for that safe place. Can we have the worship team go up and the keyboard can start doing your magic? We all need to find our safe spaces. We're not here just to check off something on our list saying we come to church. We're here because we belong to a community of faith. And we have said, this is my church. This is my church. It's different from saying this is a church. This is where I found a safe place, and this is where I'm going to get committed and involved in building a safe space as well. Everyone needs that safe place. That no one gets left behind. <laughs> no toy gets left behind. <laughs> a few months ago, I was going through such a difficult time. And I called a, I messaged a couple that I'm close to and I said, I, I need someone to talk to. And, and they came over that night. And we spoke until 4 a.m. <sighs> they just spoke life into my spirit. Spoke life into my spirit and the next day we had to serve at church <laughs> so we hardly slept something I've experienced on a very real level during this season it's not just something that I want to preach about it's not something that I've heard okay God wants me to preach about this and share about this I'm experiencing it today just recently, I just had a really rough day at work. I went out with someone to Kana Curry House. And the moment I sat down, the tears just started falling from my face. Not because the person said anything, not, they didn't even put their hand on me. No, it was just that the person was a safe place. You know, there's a quote by... Um, Dr. Henry Cloud that I just want to end on. And it says, No real and deep changes occurs outside of relationship and trust, for this, that is the place where the heart lives. Sometimes we feel that storms are the only thing that are going to bring growth in our lives. But when we don't find safe places to, to and pit stops along the way, we cut short that growth. I want to tell you that from experience, because we might grow tougher from going through those storms and those seasons, but we also grow more bitter. We also grow, uh, you know, with more hurts deep inside, which are unresolved. And we come out tougher in a certain way, but weaker in a different way. True, deep change and growth only comes when you're able to take a pit stop 
and find a safe place among people that are able to speak into your life. Don't cut short that process when you're going through a storm. Find your safe place here and help to build it together. I'm going to do something a bit different for all to call today. Not so much people come to the altar and then the pastors and ministers pray over them. I want to give a chance for the congregation to stand alongside. Is that okay? Is that okay? In the beginning of service, we went through a, a question. How many of you are going through storms right now? And there was one third of you that said that. And I know I said that it was meant to stay anonymous. But I want you to take a step of faith today, if you're able to. Even as we, before we close, can you stand up? Can you stand up in faith and say, I know that I'm going through a tough season, but I also know that I don't have to face it alone. Can you stand as a declaration of faith in saying that we are meant to walk together as a community? A community that partakes in communion, community that is anchored on Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If that is you, would you just stand up? Would you stand up and take that step of faith and allow people to stand with you as well?